Um, now, there's lots of new people today, and um, as uh, you probably could tell from the screen on the back, we've been watching, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. So let's just give a brief recap. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem, signaling to all that he is the long-awaited son of David, the king who was coming to make all things new. He has entered the temple, he's driven out the idolatry there, and he has welcomed the sick and the lame to approach and be healed. And now droves of people are coming to the temple just to hear him speak and to watch his amazing works. Now with all this excitement, however, not everybody is happy about what Jesus is doing. The scribes and Pharisees are kind of sitting on the margins of the temple in their obstinate disbelief and rejection against Jesus. Now, in every sense of the word, they are, as is true of every sinner, dead in their unbelief. Now, when we approach Matthew 23, here's how I think we should approach it. This is the Pharisees' spiritual autopsy. It's the cause of death report. Jesus is beginning this autopsy that's going to get into what is inside of a Pharisee that makes them dead. He opens them up in this post-mortem report. And he reveals their heart disease to be the underlying cause of death. And so he invites us in to this gruesome work of opening up a Pharisee and seeing what's inside. All for the sake of warning us of what might be growing inside of our own hearts. Like heart disease, the secret sickness of Pharisaism might not always be apparent to yourself or to those around you. And yet it's just as deadly. So my friends, I just want to offer you an early diagnosis to look inside your heart, to go through the dangerous work of looking at what's inside of a Pharisee And to ask yourself if you see these very same things in your own life, to make an early diagnosis, to repent and let the gospel do its good and gentle treatment in your soul before you become another pharisaical autopsy. So that's what's at stake. In Matthew's gospel, one thing is clear. To be a Pharisee is not a good thing. They are the ones that rejected John the Baptist at the Jordan River and the message of repentance. They are pompous. They're in love with their rules, and they fail to love those who are in need. They spread untrue rumors about Jesus, calling them Beelzebul, right? And say that he secretly derives his power from the devil. But I think it's helpful to remember that it wasn't always this way. They, ne- they didn't always have this kind of unsavory rep- reputation Once upon a time, a Jew would give his right arm to be a Pharisee. You know, nowadays when we come into church, we're like, you're being such a Pharisee. And we're like, you know, but back then somebody would say, you're being such a Pharisee. And they'd go, yes, I made it. Pharisees are the spiritual elite. They're the heroes who are standing on the front lines against Hellenism. This weird epidemic where the Romans are trying to make Jews become like Greeks and speak Greek language and abandon all this Hebrew nonsense. They're the ones who get the puffy hats, the comfy seats, 
the first seat at the table, they're the first in line at all the potlucks. They come into the marketplace and people call them, hi, rabbi. And they love it. They soak it in. They love the accolades, the accolades. So I, just, I think it's helpful to remember that though to us, we kind of come at it 2,000 years later, knowing that Pharisee is a bad thing, because we've, we've read it. We, we've read this story before. We've watched The Passion of the Christ. We know that they're bad guys, right? So spoiler alert, if you haven't caught it after 2,000 years, Pharisees are the bad ones. But it wasn't always that way. There's a point in time that Pharisee was a good thing. So why does Matthew take such a contradictory view with the rest of the world as to the the nature of a Pharisee? Well, he wants to remind us that primary virtue is not one's religiosity, not their status, not their accomplishments, not their political pomp, that true virtue is humble faith in Jesus Christ. Humble faith in Jesus Christ that leads to true love for God and true love for others. Jesus does not celebrate the Pharisees. Everybody else claps when they walk by. Beautiful religious men. Thank you for you kids that are clapping with me. Thank you, thank you. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't clap. Because he sees through their hearts. He knows that beyond the presentation, beyond the publication, there's something deeper and darker inside of them. So I just, I just want to bring us into the reality here. Jesus opens up these Pharisees with his scalpel and out gushes out all this nasty black disease. They look good on the outside, but on the inside is just black and dark and lack of love, lack of love for God, lack of devotion to him. Pharisees have everybody else fooled, but not God. My friends, I just think it's helpful for you to know at this very moment, you might have put your best foot forward. Everybody sees you and they applaud and they see you in your cleanness. They see you in your holiness. They see you in your religiosity. They see you in your exalted status. My friends, God sees through to the core. You might have come to church today thinking, this will check the box Everybody will be fooled. They won't know that I have secret porn addictions. They won't know that I secretly hate others. They won't know that I'm judgmental. They won't know that I don't have a real relationship with God. My friends, you don't have to convince us. God sees through to the heart. Everybody lives before an audience of one. God sees the heart. So... If Jesus were here, which he is, and he opened you up, which he will, what will your insides show? If Jesus opens you up, 
Well, out pop all the glorious evidences of transformation in Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, extreme love for those who hate us. A Christ-like cross that we bear for others. Or we'll out pop out disease, hatred, idolatry, wickedness. It's going to happen sooner or later. And either opening you up will be a massive opportunity to glorify God who changes sinners. Or it will be a nasty autopsy that shows why you're really dead. Jesus begins his lament over the sad state of the scribes and Pharisees, acknowledging that they sit on the seat of Moses. They're important people. He's no doubt about it. They're important people. They, they teach the law, and as teachers of the law, they are authoritative. They sit like Moses on the seat of authority. They are to teach the law, and people are to do whatever they tell you to do. Right? Their words are spot on. But then Jesus says that their application and lifestyle are all wrong. They're just words. They're wordy people, but they're not godly people. They say all the right things, but they don't do the right things. They preach, but do not practice. And then Jesus begins to unpack just exactly how they fail to do what the law teaches. They say they love the law. They say they want to do God's will. They say that they want to obey to the extremist point, and yet Jesus systematically opens them up to show that they do not love God and they do not love others. The two things that summarize the law which makes them lawless men, lawless people. As regard to their lack of love for others, the scribes and Pharisees, here's what they do. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move a finger. They do not teach, they do not only teach the law's demands, right? So the law has lots of demands. We know that. God is a holy God. He has given the law to point out sin so that we can know our need for Jesus when he would come. The whole point of the law is to, is to shine a light on humanity's inherent darkness. And yet they felt like it didn't do a good enough job. So we need to add to it. So they had all these rules about when you could carry your bed on Sunday, right? So, or on Saturday, the Sabbath day. You could carry it like this, but if you carry it like this, then it's work. You can pluck heads of grain by rolling between your fingers, but if you pull it, then you're now working on the Sabbath. So they had all these extra laws that people were meant, and they just made life harder. They made life harder. <laughs> Reminded of my childhood, you can't watch Disney movies. But why? Well, because. Can't go dancing, can't drink, can't smoke, can't hang out with the people that do. And there's all these extra rules that everybody has made. And they just pile it on, right? And what it just feels like is they're just watching you to make up some new rule. You're standing wrong. We had a guy that, that would stand at the front door of our church and would correct people's posture. Stand up straight, young man. Come on, tuck in your shirt. I mean, you're just the door checker, right? 
And here's, they, they present these new rules, these, this rule upon rule upon rule, and they present them as religious must-dos. If you're going to be truly holy, you're going to be good with God, then you're going to do all these little bitty things. And you're going to checklist them off. And so they add these rules. Just imagine someone doing this to you. And then they stand back and they watch. I mean, it's like the time I was working out with Dale, and I'm sitting here laboring underneath the bar, trying to get it up, and Dale walks by and laughs and leans on it. That's what the Pharisees do. Yes, I called Dale a Pharisee. I know he's watching. They were overly zealous, right? They, they, they wanted to put a heavier yoke. Acts 15.10 talks about this, where these Judaizers wanted to make the Gentiles obey the law to the T in order to become Christians, in order to be saved. And the apostles ask outright, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. My friends, if we see the law rightly... We don't see it as a list of things that we can do. It may be a list of things that we should do, but it's not a list of things that we can do. Instead, the law is a list of things that we don't do and can't do without God's transforming work in our lives. That's the law. So we point to these rules as if they're religious must-dos and Pharisees are overly zealous to to stone the prostitutes. Let's ban the blind men who don't speak politically correct in the temple. Let's accuse Jesus of not washing, uh, Jesus' disciples of not washing their hands properly before they eat. But they care little about whether or not people find rest and restoration in the presence of God. My friends, how different is this from Jesus' own ministry? I hang out with a lot of unbelievers. And one of the sad pictures that they've gotten about Jesus from the church is that he is a man of heavy, heavy demands. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, he calls them to carry a cross. Yes, he calls them to leave the fishing boats. But his yoke is easy and his yoke is light. My friends, in our holiness, do we have a standard of holiness that points people to Jesus who can give true rest, rest of mind, rest of heart, rest of soul, this kind of rest that means that they do not have to question their status with God. I mean, how good is it to just wake up on a Sunday morning, having lived the week that I lived, and know that no matter what, Jesus is my justification. I need to do better, maybe, sure. Need to repent, definitely. Need to leave sin and forsake it as the death-killing type of thing that it is. But still... Jesus has died so that I may now have no more condemnation. No more condemnation. 
So my friends, when we, when we look at ourselves, we see ourselves as these Pharisees who add on and add on and add on and add on and add on until we're just piling up people as they labor and burden and shrink underneath the weight of our standards? Or do we seek to point them to rest in Jesus? Now, my friends, we point out sin for what it is, right? We point out sin for what it is. We talk about sexual sin for what it is. Sexual sin is sexual sin, and it will lead to death. And for people's good, we talk about sin for what it is. We must. But we don't talk about sin without talking about the Savior who has come to heal that, sin, that, that guilt, who has come to take away the stains and the scars. And so, as much as the Pharisees say that they love the law, that they want to obey the law, they completely fail to do what the law says, which is to love others. And in addition to not loving others, they also fail to love God. My friends, those two things go in tandem. You cannot love God if you don't love others And if you don't love others, you are not loving God. Those two things are the whole of the law. So to think that you're good with God while at the same time do not actively love others, you are fundamentally flawed in your righteousness. At the very root, we should not treat a lack of love for others as some small quirkiness that we have in our lives. It's the result and the overflow of our love for God. If we do not love others, we cannot say convincingly that we love God. You simply can't. Here's what they do. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Now, if you don't know what a phylactery is, phylactery is one of those small boxes. You can still see them in Israel today. They, they put a box on their head because in Deuteronomy it says, write the law on your heart and your head and your forehead, your arms and all that. And so they put these phylacteries and they strap them on. And inside those boxes are pieces of the law. Okay? So you can imagine how this kind of works in the pharisaical world. You know, a guy puts a phylactery on and the next guy goes, well, I can make my phylactery bigger than that guy. And next thing you know, everybody's walking around with these big old boxes on their head, right? <laughs> And so they're trying, and the, and the evidence is, is that guy loves the law, but I love it more. I got it. And then they make their fringes, right? Which is the little tassels at the end of the cloak. They were commanded in Deuteronomy to put tassels on their cloak. And at the end of each tassel were little knots, right? Several knots. And they'd walk through them and they'd start reciting the, the law. And it was a reminder to keep the law. And so they make their tassels really long. So you can just imagine how goofy this looks, even though at the moment it looked really religious. They got these big old boxes on the head and long fringes. Don't step on my tassels. All as a show. They look like big religious peacocks. (laughs) And yet, it displeases the heart of God. My friends, sometimes we put too much stock in our exalted holiness. We don't really love God when we care more about what people think about our religion or think people think about our holiness or people think about our devotion. If you have to publish it, if you have to advertise it, you should probably ask yourself, is it really real? Right? I mean, billboards are always going to be better than the actual product. 
I mean, if iPhone could only make a commercial that shows you just how easy it is to crack the screen. <laughs> My friends, we think too much about our devotion, our publication. We, we want it to seem, we make it a competition, and yet nothing could be further from real love for God. Real love for God. My friends, can you imagine if you found out that the only time I kissed my wife was in public, but I never, ever held her hand in private? Never showed any kind of affection in private? Is that real love and affection? Or is it a show? My friends, we publish ourselves. We're self-publishers. We're producers, right? I mean, every, every day we get into the mirror and we look. Why? Because we're presenting a public image. We care about what reputation we're getting. We care about what people say. We care about what people know. And the moment somebody begins talking about their holiness, we've got to make our phylacteries a little bit bigger. But Jesus says his disciples are not to do that. They're to have a real love for God and a real love for others. If they have to advertise their devotion, it's not real devotion. Here's what he says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. Who's the one teacher? Jesus. And you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now here's what Jesus isn't doing. He isn't literally banishing teacher, father, I, I still am called dad right? So he's not literally banishing these thoughts. What he's saying is that Christians must live a life that is utterly Christ-centered and God-honoring. We should live a life that makes people see we are not the elite experts. We are not the source and epicenter of holiness. We should live in such a way that people know where our holiness comes from. We should live in such a way that people know where our righteousness comes from. People have told me a lot how much they love watching Timothy play baseball and how he's got an amazing little swing for a little boy. I can't tell you how tempted I am to tell everybody that comes from me. <laughs> it runs in the family, you know? But I hate to tell you, my, my batting record in high school was abysmal. I didn't get glasses until I was a junior, maybe sophomore, and I couldn't even see the ball. So I just, you know, that's, this is what it looks like. My, my batting record was terrible, and yet my little son's like looking like an MLB player, right? My friends, sometimes in our religiosity, that's what we do. People see something good in our lives, and we want them to think it comes from us. Yes, I work really hard at that. Thank you. Yes, I spent many years studying the Bible to get to where I am. Instead of living in such a way that everybody sees just how dependent we are in Christ. My wife gave me the signal to get back on topic. So, <laughs> my friends, we have got to be living in such a way that is dependent upon Christ, that reveals to everybody else who we rely on for righteousness. If they look at you and they point to all the things you do and say, look at how righteous that person is, they're not seeing your righteousness. Now, if they look to Jesus, 
There's your righteousness. Yehovah Teskenu, God my righteousness. They shouldn't look at your practices, they should look at the person. So in addition to living such a Christ-centered life, instead of flaunting my expertise, my intellect, my special giftings, my skills, I'm to live in a way that acknowledges, here's the word, the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficient, he's enough. The sufficiency of Christ. And then we are to express that real love for God that looks at devotion to God, at is Christ-centered, God-honoring, and we should use it to serve others, love others. The greatest among you shall be your servant. My friends, I, I think it needs to be said over and over again, serving is not just a nice little additional attribute to the Christian life. It's not just something you say, yeah, I need to grow in service. It's not, it's not that. Service is a fundamental result of having received God's grace in Christ. A fundamental result. Here's how we can understand this. Those that have been served by Jesus will inevitably serve others like Jesus. And so if there's something off with your service, there's something off with your understanding of the gospel. Can we just take it that seriously? I mean, if serving is not a big deal to you, then you have missed the heart of the gospel, which is a Savior who serves, who rises up from the table and hands you bread and hands you the cup of wine and says, drink, for it represents my blood spilt for you. My friends, if we're not servants, we're masters and experts and elites and rabbis, then we have missed the point of Christianity, which is to model Christ-like service. Want to read a good book on this? We have it in the bookstore. Fred Campbell has written one. We have bought it. It's a commercial. He's here. He'll sign it. (laughs) Buy it. We'll buy more. But one thing I've appreciated about Fred's ministry in the past is you hear him explain the gospel, and one thing it always goes down to is your service, your love for others. Because those who have been loved by God evidence that by loving others. If you've been served by Christ, if your feet have been washed by him, then you will wash others' feet. Now here's the danger of not being that. To not serve is to be a self-exalter. That's the only other, that's the only other uh, option there is. To not serve is to be a self-exalter. And here's what Jesus says. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, there's two types of people in church. There's two types of people in families. There's two types of people in our world. Those who serve and those who like to be served. Those who exalt themselves and those who humble themselves. And Jesus says plainly, that if we use our religiosity as a, t- as a chance to exalt ourselves, what happens to self-exalters? They get brought down, humbled, humiliated. And those who humble themselves are brought up. My friends, if your head hangs high because of your righteousness, he'll lower it really quickly. If your head hangs low because you have a right view of yourself, he'll raise it. You see, the gospel is the great leveler. 
It brings the proud down and exalts the humble. Now, I would want to be on the humble end of that because I feel like that's the better exchange. Nothing short of sincere love for God and others, both of which come from faith in Jesus Christ, will please God. Those who point to their long fringes are going to trip on them on the way to the door of the kingdom. Those who have these big flactories will not fit through the door. The kingdom of heaven is not for puffed up chest, big heads, large flactories, and long fringes. You have to take it all off before you come into the small door of the kingdom. Well, Jesus has just begun his autopsy. That's just the external report. You know, he points out these little things that you can see just from his eye. Now he snaps on his gloves and he raises his scalpel and he goes deeper into his postmortem report of their unseen sin. As God did with the leaders in the Old Testament, Jesus proclaims a series of woes. If you don't know what a woe is, a woe is simply a lament over a person's impending judgment. Um, in Greek, it's actually kind of funny. It's like, oi! Right? It's a woe. It's like, I, I, think, I think of someone that um, is walking on New York Street, almost gets hit by a taxi cab, and they say, oi! Right? It's one of these things that's so startling. It's dangerous. That was a total tangent, but I just thought of that. Sorry. But it's one of these things that's startling and tangent and could be deadly if not taken care of. Right? So Jesus says, woe to the scribes and Pharisees. It matches with what God says to the shepherds of Israel in Jeremiah 23.1. Or what he says to those who lie on beds of ivory in Amos chapter 6. The point is that a woe is for anyone who does not love God by loving his people. Those who do not love God by loving his people get what? Woe. Why? Because judgment is coming. Now, I think as we approach this, the application to elders, and so if you're an elder in our church, please pay attention to this. If you're a deacon, please pay attention to this. Church leaders, the application to elders, pastors, church leaders are apparent. He's speaking to you. But he's also speaking to whoever claims to be a follower of Christ. You see, the Pharisees are long dead, but their contagion still spreads in the church today. And it's still diseasing people as it spreads. My friends, it's something that churches must repent of if we're to represent Christ properly. Jesus is not a Pharisee. And his people should not be pharisaical. We must identify the contagion. We must see how it brings heart disease. We must repent. My friends, I know there's some of you here that have struggled long and you're weary and you're tired. And you don't understand it because you live such a good life. You know, it makes sense that those who who do sin openly, why they're tired. It makes sense that they're looking for satisfaction and never feel. It makes sense. But what about you? You do everything right and you're still tired. My friends, Pharisaism is very wearisome. It takes a lot to keep that going. They're both deadly. Whether you're a prostitute or a Pharisee, 
You're both gonna, they're both going to die from sin. But here's the, here's the dangerous side. The prostitute can see her sin, which is why you see so many sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes coming to Jesus for healing. Pharisees can't. Prostitutes have multiple myeloma growing on their skin, leprosy and all that kind of stuff. They can see it. They know they need healing. Pharisaical diseases grow inside. And sometimes you don't see it until it's too late. My friends, if you're weary in your walk with the Lord, you're weary of mind, you're weary of rest and soul, and you live a relatively good life, have you ever thought it may be just because the disease of Pharisaism grows inside? Maybe it's time to repent before you become just another autopsy. So, let's do the nasty work of an autopsy. We watch Bones all the time. It's a, it's a series on Amazon Prime, and man, it can get nasty. You know, there's like cutting up people and looking in and seeing all the causes of death. Well, Jesus is doing that here. So now we're going to go in to a Pharisee with Jesus. What is inside of a Pharisee? Well, we're about to find out. The first thing we find inside of a spiritually dead Pharisee is a heart full of zeal but not zeal for God. You see, they're excited about a lot of things. They're zealous, but not for the kingdom. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. The king stands, he's there in front of them, he's offering forgiveness, joy, and life, but the Pharisees refuse to admit their need for him. My goodness, one key symptom for a Pharisee, they can never admit sin. They can't confess neediness. That's Phariseeism. If your biggest fear is what people might think if you were to admit certain things, Phariseeism. So they stand there acting as if they're not hungry. And then when the hungry and thirsty people try to come to Jesus' table, they tackle them to keep them from getting there. Trying to shove their Phariseeism down their throats. They could, care, they could not care less about the kingdom's table. But one thing they do love doing is making proselytes. People just like them. They love making people just like them. Who not only follow and revere them, but become twice as much a child of hell as they are. They're not passionate for the broken, for the poor. They're not passionate about sinners finding rest with Jesus, but they do everything possible to recruit people to their brand of Pharisaism. Now, this sounds so atrocious that it's difficult to imagine anyone doing this sort of thing in our day, right? Surely nobody does this, and yet it happens more than we think. How many times have churches drawn zealous battle lines over lesser things? Boy, we're zealous. We're going to make proselytes of our favorite music style, our favorite preferences, our budgets, and even our personal opinions about current events and public policies. All while there are people dying and going to hell. You see, we're zealous about the wrong things. We want people to match our vocabulary. If you don't say it like I do, then you're not being really righteous. 
But what we don't care about is people actually hearing the true gospel. Boy, we recite our opinions. We recite our view of public events. We recite our politics. We recite our our career aspirations. We want to make people just like us. And yet the gospel is not heard on our lips. We've preached it time and time again. It's been known in our pulpits that that's a very serious and sad, tragic thing. And yet, for some reason, we haven't changed. What are you zealous for? What makes you excited? What do you get most passionate about? What meetings do you attend the most? What people do you constantly hang out with? My friends, the world will characterize you based on what you're zealous for. Which is why currently the world thinks Christians are most zealous for fill in the blank. But one of the blanks that they won't be putting in is the gospel. Because we just haven't been zealous for the gospel. My friends, it's very simple. Prostitutes, Pharisees, and everyone in between are dying and going to hell because of sin. But Jesus died to bring forgiveness. He he was buried and he rose again three days later so that sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and Pharisees could have a secure place at Jesus' table. If people haven't heard that message from you, if you don't live in that message, my friends, you are zealous for the wrong things. And we get way worked up about lesser things. And not worked up enough about the kingdom. Something we have to constantly repent of. The next thing as Jesus goes deeper with his scalpel is not only do they lack the proper zeal for the kingdom of God, but they also try to legislate devotion to God. Now, we don't necessarily make oaths in our day now, but back in the Old Testament, they were very serious events. To make an oath is where you, you stood before the altar and you made a promise and you were meant to keep that promise. The Pharisees try to legislate that a bit. They by, by Uh, Jesus' day, the Pharisees are coming up with these rules, right? If you swear by the altar, you don't have to keep your promise. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar, then you do. If you swear by the temple, you don't have to do what you promised God. But if you swear by the treasure in the temple, you do. Again, we don't make oaths, so it's kind of hard. Maybe this has nothing to do with us, right? My friends, I think this kind of spiritual blindness is more prevalent than we think. How might modern Pharisees do this kind of thing? Let me ask you, have you ever been tempted to justify your own quirky sins in an effort to prove why they're not as bad as everybody else's? Okay, okay, sure, I might gossip a little, but I'm not an alcoholic. (laughs) Or maybe, maybe Sister Susan saying, okay, okay, I sometimes treat my spouse bad, but at least I'm not like Tom who slept with his secretary. No, I don't pray. And I don't really spend much time with God at all. But at least I'm not a liberal atheist. 
Now, the danger in that is the liberal atheist actually knows that they don't believe in God. And that person doesn't. You mean they, they, they don't pray, they don't talk to God, they don't care about what his word says, they don't acknowledge his reign and existence in their life, they don't have a real urgency to love people as God has loved them. What's the difference? My friends, the saddest strategy in churches today is Christian people who are inwardly atheists. It's that Pharisaism that doesn't really care about God within. We try to legislate devotion to God. Why my sins are not so bad. That guy drinks whiskey, but I drink wine. So we're good, right? How often do we do that kind of stuff? It just comes naturally out of us. Where we try to legislate and we split hairs about what's a sin and what's not. I'm not gossiping, I'm sharing a prayer request, but I'm not really going to pray for them. <laughs> That's Phariseeism at its core. Seeing our sins as okay sins, while others' sins are damnable, that's nothing more than proof that you are blind of both God's grace and your own sin. Now, the third thing we find is that the Pharisees like to observe the minors, but they neglect the majors. This kind of sickness is similar to the previous one, but in the previous one, they try to make sin or their lapse of devotion to God seem lesser. In this one, they try to make their obedience seem greater. So they, they want to kind of lessen a little bit how bad they are, and they want to make themselves look better than what they really are. And so they're, they're doing it. It's the same kind of work. One commentator calls this unbalanced piety, right? Where we, we care more about what other people are doing, or we care more about what my sin might come across as, but we want to publish uh, the good side. Jesus says they tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now, I, I've seen a lot of tithes. I've been here for six years. I've never seen any of you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. But they tithe the mint, dill, and cumin, which means they're extra religious. They, they keep the smallest fraction of the law. They even put mint in their tithe. And yet, they just so happen to forget the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You know those things that God just happened to say in Micah 6, 8? Uh, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do what? To do justice to love kindness, that's a.k.a. mercy, and to walk humbly, faithfully with your God. Like, yeah, yeah, they, they strain the gnat, that's what Jesus says, and they swallow the camel. Now the irony of that, you get the smallest unclean animal in Israel, gnat, unclean, and a camel, the biggest unclean animal, and guess what? They strain out the gnat, but then swallow the camel. My friends, sometimes we act as if all God wants is our money, our church attendance, and our Sunday songs. And we forget that he actually wants us to love our neighbors. Now, should we give God our money, our church attendance, and our Sunday songs? Absolutely. But not to the neglect of the other. This is what you'll be held as faithful or unfaithful for. Your tithe, your church attendance, 
Your, your Sunday singing, whether you sing out or whether you just say watermelon over and over to yourself, is not what's going to be the mandated standard of faithfulness or unfaithfulness. But loving others will be. Have we gotten it mixed up? Have we become imbalanced in our piety? Yeah, I've never spoken to my neighbor, but I tithe. Yeah, I, 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 you know, like to call people names on Monday, but I sing the songs on Sunday. My friends were grasping at pharisaical straws. In this nasty autopsy, they also prioritize external appearance over internal purity. Jesus compares them to two things. He compares them to a cup and a plate that is clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. Nobody wants to eat from that, right? Filthy on the inside of the cup and plate. He also compares them to whitewashed tombs. Literally, these painted rocks that are beautiful. But inside, they're full of corpses. If the Pharisees were seven-year-olds who were told by mom to clean their room, then he'd say something like this. Your floor is clean, but your closet is full of dirty underwear and toys. That sums up our spirituality in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Where we want to look righteous, we want to look devoted to God, we want to look religious, but there's not a real relationship with God. And the stench of hypocrisy is there. My friends, God sees to the inside of the cup and the plate. God sees to the inside of the tomb. He sees the corpses. So you don't have to fool us. But you'll never be able to fool God. He can see. Now in the final woe, and we're getting to our wrap-up point. Jesus reveals that the Pharisees oppose God's messengers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And yet, in their rejection of Jesus, they show that not only do they take part in the persecution of the prophets, they fill the measure up. They kill the son. My friends, some of us would like to say, If I lived back then, I would have hung on to every word Jesus says, regardless of what everybody else would have done. I would have followed. And yet today we don't, in very severe ways. Pharisees don't see it, but they happen to be the offspring of the serpent who is at war with the offspring of the woman, the brood of vipers, right? Literally an offspring of serpents. Genesis 3.15 Or they're at war with God's righteous ones. Pharisees can't stand people that live real righteousness. They want to find some kind of dirt or they want to discredit them in some kind of way. We all know people like this, okay? Where nobody else is just good enough and they can't, they have their own standards and they're they're sickened by people who live in real righteousness. And so... Which one are you? My friends, if you are a Pharisee, that's the disease that will kill you. It's just as dangerous as if you were openly living with someone you're not married to. It's just as dangerous as if you were 
dabbling in the drugs is just as dangerous as if, if you disobeyed every other command of God. Because guess what? The wages of sin leads to death. Your Pharisaism is not a light sin. The Pharisees had a lethal disease, and it eventually killed the whole city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that happened. In AD 70, the Romans came marching in and knocked down buildings. The house was left desolate. And that's just a small picture of what was going on in the hearts. Just a few days later from this discussion, the Pharisees are going to nail Jesus to the cross. and He's going to die for yours and my sin. He's going to be buried and he's going to rise again so that Pharisees and prostitutes like you and me can have a place at Jesus' table. It's not said enough, but Pharisees are sick and Jesus came for the sick. Jesus died for Pharisees. You might not be a prostitute. You may not be one of those crazy people that you know are living in open sin, but you might be a Pharisee. And guess what? You need Jesus desperately. My friends, let the gospel heal you. You are sick. You are diseased. You may not remember the last time you had an impure thought. You may not remember the last time you did something you shouldn't have done. But sitting in your Pharisaism, your judgmentalism, your anger, your spiritual elitism, is going to lead you to death. Tired Pharisee, come find rest. You look like you're full. You put your hand on your stomach and you act like you don't need to eat. But come and eat. We all know you're hungry. Jesus knows you're hungry. There's a time for prostitutes to come and repent. But there's also a time for Pharisees. My friends, if you struggle with this, and this sermon has just kind of drawn out some things in you, can I just tell you the good news that Jesus died so that you could have a new heart? Jesus is the king of heart transplants. You don't have to be just another spiritual autopsy. You can be someone who's been brought out of death and into life. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that you will help us, Lord, to repent of our Pharisaism. God, it's not preached enough in churches. We treat it as if it's just something that's a lesser thing compared to all those real serious sins. And yet, Father, Pharisaism grieves your heart. Tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes go into the kingdom before Pharisees because they know their need. The tax collector in the temple went home justified because he knew he was a sinner. God, I pray for Pharisees today to find justification in you. 
I pray we will repent. Let us be Jesus-centered people who have found rest at the Savior's feet. I pray this in your Son's name.